we've all likely at some point needed to put down another person on a form as an emergency contact. You know, there's a little blank you have to put there. In case of emergency, this is the person that they would call. So you'd likely put down a family member or a friend. Maybe you asked their permission. Maybe you didn't. But they're listed on your form. I think usually we don't ask. We simply put down someone that we know. But occasionally we've had friends reach out, particularly if it's maybe their child in school and they needed a contact, and so they reached out and called and said, would it be okay if, if we put you down as an emergency contact for our child? Absolutely, that's fine. Imagine with me if someone called you and said, I'm wondering, would you be an emergency contact for me? But also in a little different way. And that is because sometimes I tend to get lost. So I'm wondering, if I'm lost, would you be willing to come and look for me? So sometimes when I go for a hike, sometimes it's when I'm simply in downtown Boston, you know how the Boston roads are, and so sometimes I get lost. So, so would you commit to come looking for me? And if necessary, I mean, if I was really lost and you couldn't find me, would you be willing to pull together a search party and come and search for me? Now, that would be quite the request. A much higher bar to say, yeah, I, I guess I'll commit to search for you. I think most of us don't worry about that too much. If you're like me, I do get lost, but I just never admit it. So I would never need a search party because I would never admit I'm actually lost. But what if someone did say, would you commit? Would you be a close enough friend? Would you commit to me to the extent that you would come and search for me? It'd be an interesting conversation to have. It'd be a substantial relationship to make such a commitment. And in fact, that would be one of God's good intentions for his church. That sort of a relationship that one admits, sometimes I get lost. Not physically lost. But sometimes I wander and I need someone to come and look for me. Sometimes in the future, I think it's possible I'll need a search party. So the church says to one another this strange commitment, a willingness to search, an invitation, in fact, a request, would you look for me? That's what we explore today. If you turn in the Bible to Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, you can find it on page 975. In the Bibles we provided near you, page 975, I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible just so you can see the text in front of you today. If you're new to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, we're in chapter 6, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together. If you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we would love to give you one. On your way out the back of the room, there's a table there with a stack of Bibles. Just grab one of those and take it with you today. Now today we're in the fourth week of a six-week series we're calling Together the Life of the Church. We've been moving around to various parts of the New Testament, instructions for God's people in the church. So we pick it up today, Galatians 6, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Today in our text we see this main idea. Pursue a fruitful life by persevering in doing good to others. We can pursue a fruitful life together by doing good to others. And in our text today, we'll see three ways for us to do good. We'll see doing good through gentle restoration. Then we'll see doing good through burden bearing. And the third, we'll see doing good through diligent sowing. So first, doing good through gentle restoration in verse 1. Our passage today is towards the end of this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Galatia, and he refers to them in verse 10 as the household of faith, one of the many ways that someone could describe the church. So he's speaking here to and about Christians. Christians are those who have been saved by grace through Jesus Christ, as Paul has written throughout this letter. So for instance, he begins Galatians 1, 3, and 4, writing of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Christians are those who've been saved by this grace of God. We experience this free and full forgiveness. We are adopted into the family of God. As Christians, we are a new creation. And at the same time, as Christians, we are not yet free of our sin. All Christians, every Christian, still struggles with sin. So wise Christians are alert to the ongoing presence of sin in all of us. And so therefore, as, as Christians, we're not shocked when a brother or sister in faith in the family of God struggles with sin. Notice Paul says in verse 1, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So if anyone, he's saying this can happen to each and every Christian. This could happen to me. This can happen to you. Now, the sense of caught here is that, that the person has been overtaken by some sin. And this is not referring to a person committing a sin once, but they've been overtaken. The sense that this sin has become a pattern in their lives. Now, as Christians, we're, we're aware of our own sin. We still struggle with sin, so, so we should live a life that's marked by a daily rhythm of repentance. We're not crushed. We're aware that we still sin. And so we frequently confess those sins to God. That's why in our gathering like we did already today, we, we slow down to confess sin to God. Repentance should mark every Christian's life. Now, what Paul describes here is not a person who sins seeks to repent, and is seeking to fight against it. That's not what he's talking about. That's what each and every one of us who are Christians should be doing. But this is a person who is in some way entangled in sin, 
and apparently isn't seeing his own sin clearly, or he sees it clearly and somehow he's excusing it. Whatever's going on, he's not repenting. He's not turning away from his sin. And so that's the danger here. Not when a Christian sins, but when a Christian sins and is unrepentant in that sin. So this is ongoing, unrepentant sin. And Paul tells how Christians are to care for one another in the situation which will be regularly occurring in the life of God's people in the church. And so he says, verse 1, you who are spiritual are to do this. Now this is referring to the Christians in the household of faith, in the church. So this work is not only for the elders of the church, but it's for each and every member to be engaged in this way with one another. And these fellow believers together in the same church are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So they're to go to this fellow believer, this brother, and seek to restore. The sense of the word restore here is like a fishing net that needs mending, so it needs repair. Or in in, uh, sort of medical terminology of the day would be like, a, a, a bone that is dislocated, so a shoulder that's dislocated that needs to be put back into place. So that's the sense here of restore, dislocated and needs to be returned. Now certainly if you think about a, a shoulder that's out of socket, there's pain in that, and it would take, there would be pain involved in it being put back into place, but that's a good pain because it's a pain on the path to healing. The pain of relocating it is hurtful, but... It leads to health. And so this is the goal in our text, restoration of this person. The goal is not condemnation, not humiliation, but restoration. And this restoration is to be carried out, we notice, in a spirit of gentleness. As gentle as possible in the pain of restoration. Now, gentleness here does not mean that we overlook the sin, but that the restoration is done with great sensitivity and with consideration and and trying to resist any form of sort of self-righteousness and superiority of our own. The restoration here is for this person from walking in ongoing, unrepentant sin to now having a clear view of his own sin, a repentant heart and a willingness to fight this sin again. Friends, this need for restoration is so urgent and so essential because for the Christian to continue to live in ongoing, unrepentant sin is tremendously unhealthy for that person. And if over a period of time, a longer period of time, a Christian is able to live in ongoing, unrepentant sin, it calls into question, has that person truly experienced salvation? Because Christians do sin, yes, The Christians also who know the grace of God repent of sin. So if I'm able to continue in unrepentant sin for months and months, we we begin to wonder, does he really know Christ? The desired path here would be something like this. A brother or sister who's a part of the life of the church has been caught in, overtaken by sin. And so another brother or sister who knows this person, cares about them, is aware of this sin, comes to them humbly, gently, and raises this concern to them. I've I've seen this in you. I'm wondering about this that's going on in your life. And ideally, this brother or sister hears this with a humble heart and agrees and says, you know, you're right. 
I have been trapped in this sin. You know, you're right. I, I was blinded to it. And it leads to an honest confession and repentance. Friends, that is what is desired. That's the beginning of the path of restoration. So depending on the severity of the sin, how long it's been going on, the path of restoration may be longer or shorter. But this is God's desire for his church. Now, there's certainly times when a brother or sister is living in unrepentant sin, but the person isn't willing to acknowledge this sin, isn't desiring restoration. And sometimes when that's the case, that's when we have a broader process that God has given his church that we sometimes refer to as church discipline, where the church together works for the good, the health, the protection of a brother or sister who has wandered, who is truly trapped in sin. So we want to see, friends, that the call here is not for us to affirm their sin. In gentleness, we don't come along and affirm them in their sin. The call is also not to crush them, condemn them in their sin, but it is also to take the sin seriously. Now, this call to even pursue restoration of another is countercultural in our world today. In order to do this, most in our society would think of this as being unloving and judgmental if we won't affirm everything that a person wants to do. That's what our society would say we all should do. No matter what you want to choose to do, I must affirm you if I love you. But here we're seeing, no, in fact, it's unloving for me to not work for restoration. If this brother or sister that I love is overtaken, is trapped in sin. Now, approaching someone in their sin should be a hard thing to do. In the sense that if it's easy for me to do it, I'm probably too eager to do it. So it should feel weighty. I should perhaps feel like I'm inadequate for it. And if I'm feeling the weight and I feel inadequate, then I'm probably about ready to actually do it. But if I'm too eager, I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm just here. I just feel like I serve the church by going around and correcting people. You're not the person for it. But we must love enough to do hard things for the good of one another. So the Apostle Paul here applies the teachings of, of Jesus that we see in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. He goes into less detail here, but, but Jesus also speaks of this. And friends, the reality is across the years or the decades of being a Christian, it's very likely in your life, sometimes you will be the Christian who needs to be spoken to so that you would be restored. You'll be the Christian who is overtaken in sin. That will happen in your life at some point. And at other times, you'll be the one on the other side of it. So both of those will be true in our lives as we seek to follow Christ. Now, some Christians have no gentleness, only seeking to bring repair. So as if someone, you know, is walking around a room filled with people with dislocated arms and like, no, no, no gentleness needed. Let me just grab hold of that and snap it back into place. You're the sort of person who just says, look, I just, I just tell it like it is. That's just my personality. That's not the call here. On the other side, there's some of us who are so gentle that we would never be willing to do it. In our gentleness, we would actually let them continue with the dislocated arm because we don't want to do the hard work of restoration. 
God desires a willingness to restore and to do so with gentleness. Now, in order for this to happen in an ongoing way, there has to be a significant level of trust and commitment. This is where being a member of a church is so vital because in joining a church, an individual member joins in a two-sided covenant with the other members, both sides committed to the other. So we have a membership covenant here at Hope. If you're a member, you know this, and here's how our covenant begins. Believing that we've been brought by the grace of God to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and continue to live by his grace, we joyfully covenant the following with each other. So tonight our members meet. We'll, we'll read this aloud together, reminding that, that we have joyfully chosen to covenant. Nobody forced us to do this. We said, I want to covenant with this membership. And it continues. Here's one portion of our covenant. We will walk together in love and exercise a loving care and accountability over each other and faithfully encourage and correct one another as necessary. So this is our commitment. We've said to one another, would you do that for me? Now you might ask, but, but can this sort of restoration, this sort of commitment happen without a covenant? Can it happen among Christians when, when it's not membership of the same church? It can. It's certainly possible. But the challenge is that when we are trapped in a pattern of sin, and if someone, another Christian, comes to us, most of us, at, at sort of first approach, reject their approach. They come to us. We say, no, just leave me alone. No, who are you? No, why are you being so judgmental? And so we, we want to stay over here. And because there's no covenant, they basically have to respect our wishes. Say, just back off. Leave me alone. But in a covenant, we've said together, I've asked you, if, if I wander away, would you come looking for me? I've asked you, if, if I'm caught in the fog of sin, would you search for me? And if necessary, would you get a search party and come looking for me? And you've asked the same of the other members. And so therefore, we must keep searching, even if initially the person says, please leave me alone. Just let me wander. So friends, this is why this covenant is so helpful. Because we've asked this sort of commitment from one another. As a friend, I wonder, if you're a Christian, is there a sin that you are currently caught in? Is there a pattern of sin in your life that maybe nobody else knows about, but you've been overtaken by this sin? Friends, the good news is there is grace for you today forgiveness for you today. So let me urge you, repent today, turn back to Christ. And let me ask, are you connected to a local church where you have others who are committed to watch out for you? If you wandered off in the faith and, and you were lost, are there some who would say, we are committed to come and look for you? And I would encourage you to find that. We'd love for you to join our church, but if not this one, there are numerous churches around our city that preach this same gospel. We'd love for you to join one for your own protection in the years ahead. If you are a Christian, I wonder, if you think about your relationship with others as they struggle with sin, is it possible that sometimes you too eagerly confront? 
you too easily embrace confrontation and, and do so without gentleness? Or on the other side, are you never willing to seek to restore? Do you at times see someone struggling, trapped in sin, but perhaps out of the fear of the opinions of others, a variety of hesitations, you're just unwilling to help? We should see that even as we seek to do this good and loving and important work, there's a danger that we face. Look down at verse 1 again. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So it's an important caution that as we do this, we must be alert to our own hearts. We can easily be tempted to be judgmental and self-righteous, to be prideful. So we have to be so very careful of religious superiority. The temptation to think that the sin they're facing, we could never fall into. To be careful of thinking that whatever sin this person is overtaken by, we would never commit such a serious sin. We're going to be careful of that prideful outlook. We must understand, always aware that we're equally vulnerable. Maybe in that same area, maybe not in the same area, but we're equally vulnerable to sin in other areas. So we see doing good through gentle restoration. But then second, we see doing good through burden bearing in verses 2 to 5. Look down at verse 2. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the sense of the word burden here refers to a very heavy weight or stone, something heavier than one can carry on their own. As we all know, there are massive burdens in this life. I mean, across this room, so many burdens that we face, disease, physical suffering, ongoing pain. The pain of the death of loved ones and close friends, financial difficulties, the loss of a job, relational strife, troubles in marriage and families, temptation and sin. Friends, all of us have burdens. And they may differ in shape and size across this room, but all of us have burdens, and all of us have burdens that are too large for us to bear on our own. So Christians who are living together in the community of the local church are called here to bear one another's burdens, to share in this carrying of these burdens. As you know, part of living in Boston is moving, and moving a lot, typically. And it's almost never moving from first floor to first floor. I don't know if you've known a single person in Boston who's pulled that off. It's usually, it seems, third floor to third floor with really narrow stairs. In fact, impossibly narrow stairs. A few years ago, we were helping some folks from the church who were uh, moving to the third floor, of course. And, and everyone who goes to the third floor with narrow stairs also has the largest couch possible. So they had this massive couch. We tried the front stairs. We tried the back stairs. It just was not going to work. So it's either we throw the couch away, but, but clearly that was not going to happen. So, so we're going to go over the top. So they, you know, run a rope over the third floor down. They tie the rope around someone who's up in the apartment, not me, but, but a very young guy up there, foolish guy, you know, tied to the, tied to the couch. Uh, some of us on each floor pushing up. Uh, I'm standing down there just praying. No, I, I was also trying to, to help a little bit. And so we, we push and push and push, and we finally got the couch up there. When they moved next time, I was not available because I'm not sure how, how the couch got out. But so all of us doing our part. 
And then a few years later, our, our family moved, and probably our largest piece of uh, furniture is this massive desk that someone gave to me 25 years ago. It was an old, like, school teacher desk, so it's incredibly large. I love it, but there is no particle board in it. I mean, it's like real wood, and it would kill you if it fell on you. And of course, my office is on the second floor and narrow stairs, and so then I need people there to come risk their lives and, and hoist it up and over. And they're sharing these loads as we carry. Friends, how much more do we have these massive burdens in life that are too big for any of us to bear on our own? That will crush us. And that we need others to help us bear them. And friends, that's what the church is to do. To come alongside one another to help bear these Sometimes it's a brief need of only a short season. Often it's enduring, even lifelong. My friends, when we come alongside one another like this, it glorifies God as it fulfills the call to love neighbor, to love one another. And we're being the church God intends us to be. Now, if you're with us a few weeks ago, it, the beginning of this series, we were in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. You may remember it said this. Cast all your anxieties or your cares or your burdens on the Lord. So Peter says, cast your burdens on the Lord. Paul says, bear one of those burdens. Which is it? Are these contradictory? Well, no, of course not. It's both. We are absolutely to cast these burdens on the Lord because he cares for us. That's one of the greatest ways we can love one another to take this burden and cast it on the Lord. And sometimes there are burdens that a brother or sister has, and there is actually nothing we can do except for pray. And it is a beautiful thing to bear that burden with them. But often, a brother or sister may have a burden, and yes, we must start by praying, casting it on the Lord, and then in addition to that, also help to bear the burden. So so it might be a friend in the midst of significant physical suffering, fighting disease. So we're praying for God to do what only God can do. And then it may be also that you're able to serve like saying, I would be glad to give you a ride to the hospital. Or we would love to provide some meals for you. Or if finances are an issue, we will help in that. Or if someone has a financial difficulty, say, I'm going to pray with you for that. And you might have the means to also help be the very answer of that prayer. So it's not one or the other, but it's both. Yes, cast our cares upon the Lord, for he cares for us. And God's people come alongside and serve. And friends, when we do this, when we bear one another's burdens, we truly help one another in meaningful ways. And we serve as a pointer to Christ. Across the years, in in many of those moves, you know, helping someone move from one place to the other, I've also seen numerous times where a neighbor said, who are all these people who are helping you? And people say, that's my church. And people say, your church? I mean, what what kind of church do you go to that people are, you know, foolish enough to come help you carry up to the third floor? It's curious. It's intriguing to see a, a family who would serve in those sorts of ways. So friends, let's be a church who are eager to bear one another's burdens. And it is a great joy to see you do this, for you often do this, not perfectly, but in big and small ways. I see it personally. I also hear 
secondhand how you again and again seek to love, serve, and bear one another's burdens. Now, what's the danger we face in this area of burdens and in helping to bear the burdens of others? Again, it's pride. We see this in verse 3 and 4. It's easy to deceive ourselves about our own importance, about our own spiritual maturity, and then in our self-importance to be unwilling to see the needs of others. What a temptation it is to think that we're just too important to get our hands dirty with the burdens of others. Or to think I'm solving bigger issues. I'm changing the world. I don't have time to save, help a neighbor, a fellow member of the church. And with our pride, there is the danger of self-reliance. I struggle against a serious street of sinful self-reliance. It's always been a struggle for me. A few years ago, that same move, we were moving on a weekday. And Brandy was like, why don't you just call some people from the church and ask them to help? I was like, no, I didn't want to ask for help. And so people have to work, and so I'm trying to do this, and we have way too much stuff, and so we're moving. So I'm going to hire some movers off of Craigslist. It's a longer story than I can tell. It was an absolute disaster. So, you know, I actually eventually paid them to leave because they were actually slowing down the work as opposed to helping in the work. And so I'm just plugging away. And so eventually Brandy's like, I'm calling some people from the church. And I tried to argue, but I was also like, you know, we're not going to make it without it. So she puts out the call, and then many of you, so many came to help carry our stuff. But in my self-reliance, I would be tempted to, to spread the move over seven days just so I don't have to ask for help. To just wear myself out because I don't want to be a burden to somebody else. So if you let me encourage you. That sort of self-reliance is not good. It's not God. Don't be like me in that area. Are you willing to let others bear your burdens? Of course, the challenge is that on our own, we can't be, we won't be humble burden bearers. Even if we do bear the burdens for others, we'll take pride in that. Won't we? we'll, we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, I really did help them out. But friends, we, we can make pros- progress because Christ has borne our Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Some of those beautiful words of Jesus in all the scriptures. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is Prince Jesus Christ, the Savior and King, he is the ultimate burden bearer. And through his death and resurrection, he took the burden that we could never lift from ourselves or from others, our rebellion and sin. He paid for it in full to lift that burden from us. So friend, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know of Jesus who lifts, has eradicated this burden for all who will trust in him. We'd love to tell you more. If you're interested, I'll be at the door following the service. You can note it on your connection card or on the form. If you say, I'd like to know more. Who is this Jesus? Does he really lift burdens like that? And for those who are Christians, we've come to experience the grace of Christ, how he's taken our ultimate burden. Now we're freed and empowered to humbly help bear the burdens of others. But then notice Paul also says something interesting in verse 5. He says, for each will have to bear his own load. 
So if you're reading, you're just paying attention. He says, well, verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. Verse 5, for each will bear his own load. So now is Paul contradicting himself? Which is it? If you look closely at the translation, there are two different words in the English translation that were read. Burden in verse 2, load in verse 5. Verse 2 is the idea of, as I said, a very heavy weight. Beyond what we can individually bear. But verse 5 is, is more like a backpack that a person can carry. And so there are some burdens we, we have to cast on the Lord. There are some that are too big for us to bear. But there are also some loads in this life that every single person will bear. The size of loads vary under God's sovereign hand. Every one of us in the room, this room have a backpack we carry through life that's a very real load. It does no good to compare it to others, but we have these loads. They lead to discouragement at times. They are weighty. All of us have loads to bear. And so this is a helpful, realistic view because sometimes Christians think, once we become a Christian in this life, that there is no other load ever to bear in this life. That's just foreign to what we see in the Scriptures. The grace of God sustains us, but will sustain us in carrying a load, and we'll have a load in this life until the last day. And so it takes wisdom and discernment, and sometimes outside counsel to discern, is this just a load I'm supposed to bear in this life, or is this a burden I should actually share and let others help me with? So we see doing good through burden bearing. And then third, and more briefly, doing good through diligent sowing. Doing good through diligent sowing in verses 7 through 10. Paul talks about the law of sowing and reaping. And in God's sovereign design that we just see around our world again and again, whatever you plant, that's what grows. So if you plant an apple seed, you will not get wheat. You'll get an apple tree. That's God's design in the world. We see it confirmed again and again and again. And so Paul urges us, therefore, so wisely. Don't deceive yourself. Now, the good news for the Christian is that Christ has intervened on our behalf so that we don't reap all that we've sown. Christ took our punishment. So, so I've, I've sown much sin in my life. And apart from Christ, I should reap the punishment from that. But because of Christ, he has intervened. And there, we don't reap what we've sown. And as we become Christians, we continue in this life to want to be discerning, to be careful. And how we sow through what we do, we invest our time and energy in. We sow to the Spirit or we sow to sin. And if I sow to the flesh to sin, I'll reap the outcome of sin. Even as a Christian, there are very real consequences to sowing to sin in this life. There are applications of the way it plays out day to day. Even though God is giving me grace, I still reap some of what I sow. And the good news is that positively, as we see in verse 8, when we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life and the reality of that in this life today. So as a Christian, I want to consider, what am I sowing? Which fields have I been sowing in? Where will I sow this week? The Apostle Paul gives us one specific example of sowing in this just one sentence uh, mention of sowing generosity. Verse 6, as he talks about caring for the teachers of the word. But notice it's not an equation. He doesn't say, if you give X to support the pastor, you'll get 4X in return. He doesn't say that. And if I try to do that in my own mind, I would be trying to somehow manipulate God, and he reminds us God will not be mocked. So, so I can't fool God in that way. But God's way is that so often when God's people are quite generous, God does love to give them a harvest, even in this life, because they are more generous with it. 
That's one way of sowing well. But notice that Paul mentions a very real challenge, verse 9. That is, as we're sowing in this life, the challenge of growing weary, bearing one another's burdens, sowing seed is often exhausting. We're often tempted to give up, and the harvest is rarely obvious. In agriculture, you, you plant, you plant wheat, you know this is the time wheat is supposed to grow. And in that window of time, you can see, did it work or did it not? But in so much of life, the sowing and reaping, it's not immediate. The clock is so very different. And so it's exhausting. We're tempted to give up, but he urges here, don't give up. He says, harvest is coming. There is a future harvest. But friends, we shouldn't be surprised if we sometimes feel like giving up. If you have felt wearied, if you felt like giving up and doing good and sowing good, that's not surprising. Because life in this fallen world is hard. There's so many challenges that we face, so we shouldn't be shocked by that. Doing good can be thankless. It can be tiring. It's often disappointing, and it rarely brings a quick harvest. But friends, don't give up. In time, there will be a harvest. Friends, the changing of lives takes time. The transformation that Christ brings about takes decades. And so, so often, maybe you have a family member you've been, you've been praying for for years. They don't know Christ. Here and there, you've tried to share the good news, and, and you've almost given up. You're weary. Maybe you're even going to see them this week at Thanksgiving. Somebody encourage you, don't give up. Stay the course. Keep praying. Maybe you've been fighting against the sin in your own life and you feel like, I don't know that I'm making any progress at all. Friend, don't give up. Keep sowing. So many areas. The life of a church doesn't happen quickly. We keep sowing that by God's grace, more and more people who've never heard the gospel in our neighborhood would hear the good news. We keep sowing so that new churches can be planted. We keep sowing so that we can send people to the nation. We keep sowing so that together we would grow in godliness and maturity to be more and more like Christ. Don't give up. We see in verse 10 where we're to do this sowing, we're to do good, we're told, to everyone. This is the call to love neighbor. And this doing good to everyone is multifaceted. Now, what's the greatest good we can do? It is to tell them of this eternal hope in Christ. So a part of our doing good, friends, must be to speak of Christ, to share this good news. But that's not the only good that we do. So we speak of the eternal good, and we also work for the material, short-term good. Meeting needs, loving, encouraging. We're told to do good to everyone. But notice that Paul also says, as we have opportunity, and each of us in the room have different opportunities, don't feel guilty for the opportunities that you don't have. Take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of you. Now, the temptation is, in the busyness of life, we just don't see opportunities when they come. But don't worry about what you can't do. Think about what God brings in your path. In this season of life, do good as you have opportunity. And then Paul adds an additional note. He says, especially to those of the household of faith. So do good to everyone. 
to all we encounter, we can do good, we should do good, but especially we have a commitment to the family of faith, but it's not one or the other. Sometimes Christians try to pit these against each other. Some say, no, we've got to mainly focus out there, or others say, no, it's only in here. But here Paul's saying it's both. Do good to everyone. And absolutely, we must do good within the family of faith. And do so as we have opportunity. Friends, Christ has borne our burdens. He's provided our ultimate good, and now he will empower us today, this week, to do good. To do good together, to do good as we're scattered to the city, to do good as we're scattered perhaps to be with family and friends over the holidays. Christ will give you grace. The Spirit is with you. He is in you for what he has before you this week. This morning as a means of response, there are several ways to respond. One of those is the connection card. So maybe there's some ways that we could pray for you. Maybe some ways we could bear a burden with you. We would love to know that. There might be some ways that, that we could serve you this week. Maybe you'd like to know more about Christ. If you'd like to know more, I'm also be available outside. We'd love to chat with you. If you came with a family member or friend, be sure and ask them. They would love to tell you more as well. So we're going to bow our heads for a time of silence just to consider our own heart. Maybe today, friend, repent of sin if you're trapped in sin today. Then I'll lead us in praying together, and we'll sing as a means of response. Let's bow our heads together.